following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Jesus, our great desire is to know you. And we ask that you would be as gracious to us as you were to the disciples you walked with on the road to to Emmaus. And that you would open our eyes to see you. And open our hearts to understand your word. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Most of us are familiar with the telephone game where a group of people will stand in a circle and somebody starts with a phrase and whispers it to them, the person next to them, and the person, therefore, then whispers that phrase to the person next to them, and so on down until it comes full circle. And then, of course, what usually happens is all that's left is some semblance of the original phrase that was started with. Likewise, I think what most people believe about the Lord's table is like the telephone game. What they've learned, they've learned from theologians. And that's fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. As long as what the theologians have taught based it on Scripture. Often, however, the conclusions that they defend their beliefs in regarding the Lord's Supper are based off of the ideas of other theologians who have based those ideas off of other theologians. And often, those theologians have taken texts out of context 
And my point is not to say that reading theology is bad, just the opposite. I think reading theology is very wise. That's what we should do. But it can be dangerous. And like anything, you want to know how a theologian or how a pastor or any teacher is coming to their conclusions. You don't want to just take their word for it or take the word of another person or of another person, another person's word for it. What does, where do they get their conclusions from? Is it from scripture or just a theological system? And I think this is particularly true in regards to reformed theologians. And full disclosure, I recall, I consider myself a reformed theologian, reformed pastor. And so this would be like one criticizing their own family. So consider that. A number of reformed doctrines are truly Catholic doctrines that have been reformed to fit a Protestant system rather than being positions that are derived from the exegesis of Scripture. They took what they had within the Catholic Church, refitted it to line up with what they discovered, particularly regarding uh, their revitalized soteriology, and then fit it within that context. Now, I think if you were to look at the summary of biblical texts on the Lord's table, you would discover that most of what has been taught throughout history does not derive from Scripture. It's derived from philosophy or man's imagination. What they want it to symbolize, for instance. Let's look at just a summary of what the Lord's table does tell us what the word of God says about the Lord's table. There's really only a few passages that actually talk about the Lord's table itself. Each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, mention Christ um, in the Lord's table. And this is really what what Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And really, if you were going to summarize the teaching that you see there, what they're emphasizing is that Christ is the ultimate Passover lamb. Even as we read from Exodus, Exodus was pointed to Christ. And when Christ was seating with, seated with his disciples, he's saying, I am that Passover lamb. All of that points to me, particularly his atoning death. Some would cite John chapter six, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. That phrase, um, most reformed theologians would not consider that as you know, referring to the Lord's table, but you could see where they get that. The other two passages are 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17. We saw that a couple weeks ago. And that's really emphasizing the fact that the Lord's table is a covenant meal. It's a, it's a meal that celebrates the new covenant that Christ established. And it, its emphasis there is that we have fellowship with Christ in that covenant meal. And then this text that we'll look at today, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34 Really, the focus of this text is on the death of Christ and the implications of that death on our lives and how we treat one another in light of that. And that point is actually frequently missed. And even when it's understood, the, the, the text here is frequently misapplied. In fact, I will confess, I have misapplied this text because of a failure to understand it rightly, Many times. But I think when we truly understand what it's communicating, it provides a richness that will invigorate us to want to celebrate the Lord's table more eagerly. 
This is a wonderful passage. But I say that not for the reasons that you might think. And even I say that somewhat to provoke your curiosity. But also, I I really would rather invite you, as we look at this text together today, I want you to think carefully about what Paul is saying. See, I want you to be theologians looking at the scripture, and I want to help you see what Paul is trying to communicate. And so, let's think carefully together. The way the passage breaks down is really four different parts. The first is he demonstrates the problem that was taking place in their participation in the Lord's table. Simply put, they were being selfish. Secondly, he then, in order to correct that problem, gives his teaching on the Lord's table, his doctrine. The focus of it being death, the death of Christ and that, the implications of that death on the Corinthians. And then thirdly, the implication of that. If, in light, if you understand what Christ did and what that means for you, how then should you respond to the Lord's table? And then fourthly, he gives some practical application to them. And basically saying, instead of being selfish, be selfless when you take the Lord's table together. So let's look at this passage more in depth. Wow, that was out of order. My fault. All right. Verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. What Paul is saying as he introduces this is that when I hear of your celebrations of the Lord's table, yes, I'm glad you're celebrating it as I pass it on to you, but you're missing the point. And that's evident in the way that you guys are celebrating it together. It's not a celebration. It's an unfortunate misunderstanding. Instead of enjoying a sense of unity, just the opposite was taking place. So instead of being a beautiful bride that was radiating the glory of Christ, they looked more like a soldier who had recently stepped upon a landmine. The limbs were separated from the head, one member here, another member there. They were ripped apart rather than united together in this celebration. And this was, again, particularly demonstrated in their meal. He says, each one takes his own meal. So clearly this is describing something different than what typically gets practiced. Not just, it was describing a meal, not just simply juice or wine and not just bread, but a full meal was being taking place because some were left hungry and others were getting drunk. But they weren't taking it together. That's the problem. Now, that might not seem like a big deal. I mean, why would just eating separately be that big of an issue to Paul? But that is the problem. I mean, recognize that's the problem. So we might not think of that as a big deal, but it is a big deal because of what it's communicating about what they don't understand. Because they continue to think like individuals to the extent that some were coming just to gorge themselves on a meal. And then there was others who weren't receiving anything and they were going home hungry. And even some were getting drunk, he says. So the point 
in eating the Lord's, sa- Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, is not to eat, but it's to come together as a body and to remember who we are in Christ. That's the point of it. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were failing to do, as Paul demonstrates. Rather than sharing what they brought with others, they were humiliating those in the body who had nothing to bring. They were feasting, some were feasting in the presence of those who had nothing. A blatant disregard for them. Paul describes this as despising the church. That's a strong word. The word despise means to think little of, to look at some, somebody or something and count them as worthless, as having no value. That's how you, you think of the church as worthless. Like Esau who despised his birthright. So they were despising the church of God, it says in verse 22, in shaming those who had nothing. And in particular, they were failing to discern what it meant to be a part of the body of Christ as represented in the Lord's table. So Paul suggests in verse 19 that these divisions caused by selfishness actually were differentiating those who did understand it and those who didn't. As he says in verse 19, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. This is also an interesting word. The word genuine, it means something that has been proven through testing. And this is the noun form of the word that he uses in verse 28. The word examine. So we'll get back to that when we get to verse 28. But it means to be proven through testing. It's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter uh, Chapter 1, verse 7, where he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He uses the same word in First Thess 2, 4. Just as, we've, as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So this, the genuineness is seen in that they have been proven. There is, a, there is a test that's taking place. And the test is, how are, do you understand what the Lord's table signifies? And they were failing this test in large part. Now it does seem, I'm sorry, it does not seem that Paul is seeking to differentiate believers with unbelievers in using the word genuine. He's not trying to say, let's... The Lord's table is demonstrating who is the real believer and who is the fake believer. Although it's possible it can mean that. But I think in looking at the text, particularly because of verse 28, the genuine and approved are those Christians who truly understand what they're communicating when they eat the Lord's table. They understand its implications. They're those who truly understand the gospel. They're not being hypocritical in their taking of the Lord's table. And so in order to expose their misunderstanding, as demonstrated by their selfish actions, Paul presents his doctrine of the Lord's table. So what does the Lord's table teach the Corinthians? Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, as we look at what Paul teaches here, it's really important that we keep in mind that Paul is not trying to give an exhaustive teaching on the Lord's table. He is take, he's using the Lord's table as an illustration of the fact that they're missing the gospel. They're misunderstanding something greatly, just as he's done the same thing throughout 1 Corinthians. He's trying to help them understand how they're missing the teaching of the Lord's table. He's dealing with their heart issue. And like, like parents who seek to shepherd a child's heart in their disobedience, not just the outward behavior, this is what he's trying to address with the Corinthians. He's reminding the Corinthians of what Jesus said in order for them to realize what they're not doing, what they're falling short in. Now, as mentioned before, there is much more to the Lord's table than what Paul teaches here. Paul's not trying to draw out all the symbolism that can be recognized in the Lord's table. He's focusing on one particular issue, and that's the main issue in Corinth. And I'd say the, really the main application of the Lord's table. So if you think of the synoptic gospels uh, being the believe in Christ as the perfect atonement for your sins, that's what that's teaching. This is the... Um, application part of what we're supposed to believe so if you think of the gospel as what the apostles proclaimed repent and believe or believe and repent the synoptic gospels are the believe part this is the repent part in light of what you believe and the key verse in this section is seen in verse 26 you proclaim the lord's death so this is paul's summary of what jesus teaches you proclaim the lord's death until he returns Death is being proclaimed. And it's death that is being forgotten by the church at Corinth. And where do I get this from? Well, notice what Paul emphasizes, what he reminds them of when he considers both the bread and the cup. First of all, he sets the context, which is interestingly enough, by saying, on the night he was betrayed. He doesn't just simply say, when he sat down to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He puts in the context of, this is when he was betrayed. And then he says, the bread that he took was broken. Well, what's that signifying? The cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's talking about Christ's death. And besides the symbolism of death, the other things he repeats is Jesus' command to remember. And that's exactly what the Corinthians weren't doing. They weren't remembering what Jesus did for them. Because if they were, if they recognized that they were fully deserving of the wrath of God, and that there was nothing they could do to make an atonement for their sin, that they justly deserved hell, and that Christ himself, being the Son of God, being holy, without sin, laid down his life for them, despite being eternal of God, and despite them being enemies worthy of damnation, he, if, if, they understand, if they're saying, yes, I get the gospel, you died for me, you, God, died for me, dust, and then go and treat other members of the body of Christ as worthless, they don't understand what they're saying. 
See, they don't get the gospel. They might understand some ideas, but they don't get it. Because you don't consider the cross of Christ and then treat other members of the body of Christ like dirt. If you get it. Saying you don't understand. For although Christ's atoning sacrifice is symbolized in these elements, the apparent emphasis in the Gospels, what they should have recognized is just as Christ laid his down his life for us, so also ought we to lay down our life for one another. Just as John taught in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his eye for us, and ought we to lay down our lives for the brothers? If anyone sees, has the world's good and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. We should also keep in mind what Jesus was teaching when he broke the bread, when he took the cup at his final Passover meal. Just, just recall what he said in John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So if the Corinthians are eating, if they're saying, yes, I understand all of that. I understand the death of Christ. There is no way that they would feast while one of their brothers or sisters had nothing. They don't get the gospel, is what he's saying. And so in taking of the elements, we proclaim the Lord's death. The word proclaim here is the word to preach. And many have noted that the Lord's Supper is actually just a sermon in and of itself. It preaches. And that sermon has an application. And that's the application that the Corinthians were ignoring. So according to Paul, what is the sermon that's being preached? The Lord's death until he comes. What's meant by this prepositional phrase, until he comes? What's it referring to? Well, look, it's modifying the verb you proclaim. So Paul's point is that we will continue to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And until that day when he is fully disclosed as the Messiah, as the Son of God, we will proclaim the Lord's death, both in celebrating communion, both in the preaching of the word, and in our lives. Our lives are about death to self until he comes. And then it will be about life. But until that time, we proclaim the Lord's death. His death for sinners, ill-deserving of grace, packaged in our dying to ourselves. As Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. We proclaim that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Do you see the connection? If you believe 
Christ died for you. If you believe it, you die to yourself for others. That's the logic. If you understand it, that's what happens. You can't remain selfish and say you believe in what Christ did for you. That's not logical. There's something you don't get then. You maybe understand the idea, but it hasn't changed your heart. And so when we come together as a body, when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are preaching to one another, exclaiming to one another, because Christ died for me, I will die for you. That's what we're saying. When we come up and take the elements and go back to our seats, we're not just saying, I believe Christ died. Yes, we are saying that. But more than that, we're saying, in light of, what, for, in light of Christ dying for me, I will die for you. And you, and you, and anybody else that celebrates this table with us. And frankly, even for the lost. But in particular, for one another. As Christ laid down his body, we, his body, will lay down our lives for one another. But what if we don't mean that when we take the Lord's Supper? What if when we're taking the elements, that's not what we're thinking? What if we don't intend to die to ourselves and we don't intend to die for one another? Well, I think the conclusion is we should expect judgment as Paul brings our attention in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the blood, or sorry, (laughs) correction, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now the key word in this section, throughout the rest of this passage, is the word judgment. The word judgment comes up seven times. That's not accidental. Paul is being very purposeful with this word. And it's one of Paul's favorite words in the letter. We've drawn that out before. Because... Remember, Paul, one of, the, one of the major problems the Corinthians were having is that they were really proud of their knowledge and of their wisdom. And that manifests itself in many ways. And Paul keeps trying to show them that in all of their wisdom and knowledge, it's meaningless unless they apply it rightly. So again, this is like the person who's convinced that they're right. And yet, being so convinced that they're right unrighteously hurts other people trying to prove their argument. So they need to use their impressive critical skills on themselves, is what he's saying. So Paul is saying, look at what Christ did and ask yourself, are you truly following him with your life? To fail to do so is to eat the elements in an unworthy manner and so make yourselves guilty of the body and the blood. He says they're guilty of actually sinning against the Lord's body. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because again, one of the things Paul has drawn out in the letter multiple times is Christ identifies with his body. That which you do to the least of my people, you do unto me, he says in Matthew 25. He, he, he told the Corinthians, not the Corinthians, sorry, forgive me. He told Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. This church is my body. You're persecuting me. 
And so if we're failing to love one another, especially if we're attacking one another, we're guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. We're on par with those who said of Christ, he's guilty, crucify him. Well, how do we avoid such guilt? Verse 28 tells us, let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. He tells us to examine ourselves. Now, again, this is a different form of the Greek word that's used in verse 19. Same stem. It's the word genuine there. And this, this helps us understand what Paul means. Test yourselves to see if you're those who pass the test. Test yourself. Do you really understand the gospel? Or is it just a, a nice philosophical idea? Has it changed your life? Do you love the body of Christ? Now, please understand that Paul is not encouraging introspective nasal gazing. Navel gazing, sorry. He's just asking a simple question. Are you genuine? Do you understand what Christ has done for you? Will you follow him? For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So Paul says, speaks of discerning the body. You need to discern the body. Examine yourselves. Discern the body rightly. To discern the body, he's using body there with a double entendre, a double meaning. Referring to the church and Christ's physical body as symbolizing the elements. If you realize what Christ, what the symbols are pointing to, that should help you understand how you should respond to the church. If you recognize that you're now a part of Christ's body, you will value the other members equal to yourself. You see that? If you recognize that your identity is being part of the bride of Christ, that's your identity, you're in Christ, recognize so is everybody else that's in Christ. They're equally important as you are. You should care about them as much as you care about yourself. Well, that's not what was going on in their celebration of the Lord's table. That wasn't what was going on in their worship service. There was divisions. A failure to discern the body rightly will result in being disciplined by God. A failure to get this results in discipline, is what he's saying. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. When we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when Paul exhorts them to examine themselves in verse 28 and judge themselves truly, verse 31, parallel statements, he's not concerned that some of them are unbelievers and they're partaking of the elements, defiling the elements. That's not his concern. He's not worried that somehow the elements are being defiled. And we know this because in verse 32, his concern is that their hypocrisy is leading to the discipline of God, not condemnation. He's worried because some believers, because of their hypocrisy, are bringing the, the heavy discipline of God upon themselves and aren't repentant. His concern is for the Corinthian church. 
See, God doesn't discipline unbelievers. Unbelievers are condemned. They're condemned with the world, as he says. But God disciplines his children. And often God's discipline is not gentle. As with Corinth. Some were weak. Some were ill. Some had died. Why? Because they weren't taking seriously the truth that they're now part of the body of Christ. It wasn't about the elements. It was about their hypocrisy. It was about their failure to truly understand the gospel. He says, he uses the word disciplined. And this is a word familiar that those familiar with classical education will recognize. It's the word paideia, which means the process of training one up to behave properly. Hebrews uses the word in Hebrews twelve eleven. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The discipline that the Corinthians received was such that many were weak and ill and some had died. And so understand Paul's heart here. He's not trying to condemn them. He's not angry beating the pulpit saying, come on, you idiots. He's concerned about them. He loves them. He doesn't want to see them under the discipline of God because they're ignorant of what the, what the Lord's Supper communicates. He doesn't want to see them hurt by God's judgment. He wants them to enjoy all of the grace that could be theirs. Some are weak and ill and some have died as a result of this behavior. Well, how does Paul know that that's why they were weak and ill and died? Well, I don't think Paul is being like one of Job's friends. Because certainly we would, ha- we would have no ability to know that just by looking at somebody's circumstance and go, ah, you know, the reason the Turners are having a hard time is because they're taking the body and the blood of the Lord in an unworthy manner. That'd be stupid to say that. Well, how can Paul say it? Presumably, God told him. Paul, they mock me through proclaiming that I died for them, but they fail to repent and love those for whom I died. So I'm seeking to wake them up from their hard-heartedness. I don't want them to be hard-hearted, ignorant Christians. I love them. And any loving parent would discipline their child. God is a loving parent. But he also takes hypocritical worship very seriously. And we need to take heed of how God warns Israel regarding their worship when they struggle with this very issue in Isaiah 66. Notice what God says to Israel regarding the same issue. It says, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. It's talking about temple worship. They offer up an ox and they might as well be killing a man right in front of them. In the tabernacle, in the temple. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. 
So how does God respond? I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. So what should our hearts look like as we come together in worship? Well, this is what Isaiah says in the verse prior, verse 2. This is what God says through Isaiah. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I think if we understand that and we understand what Christ was communicating to his disciples when he laid down his life, there is no way that we would fail to love one another. And then I, there's pause. I had pause there and this is why. Because yes, of course, we're going to still struggle with sin. The issue is, do we grieve it? Does it bother us that we ignore members of this church just because we don't feel like talking to anybody on Sunday? Does it bother us when we hear a need and we'd rather just spend time on our own? We are going to struggle to love one another. We're sinners. But does it grieve us? I mean, are we grieved by it or we just make an excuse and go, well, that's just who I am. That's not being humble and contrite of spirit. Paul continues in verse 32. And he points our attention to the fact that God is judging and disciplining them so that they would not be condemned. God judges us and disciplines us so that we would not be condemned. And the assurance salvation gives us is that we will never be condemned. We will never go to hell despite all of the multitude of sins that we have committed. Despite the fact that that's exactly what we deserve, we won't. But we still may undergo the discipline of God. And God will will discipline us in incredible love to prove to us the genuineness of our faith. As he says in Hebrews 12, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. So if we're hard-hearted towards one another and God does not discipline us by possibly weakness, illness, and death, that's not a good thing. If God does not discipline us, that's a, that's a bad thing. That's a sign that we're not His children. And this is why repentance is so important. Recall again what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, two chapters earlier. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is, Sinning deliberately, without repentance, without remorse, without trying to obey, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does remain is a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God 
and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Mark those words. You are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. It's the same idea as the author of Hebrews is warning. You have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so recognize that fencing the table, when we fence the table, it's not about trying to protect the elements from being defiled. It's about guarding us from hypocrisy. Paul's not concerned about defiling the elements, but people failing to take Christ seriously. So whether a person eats or doesn't eat isn't the real issue. The elements are not the issue. The issue is, do you understand what Christ did for you? And this is true about every element in the worship service. This is true about singing a song. If we sing the song without really meditating on the words that we're singing, it's hypocrisy. It doesn't please the Lord. If we allow one, our minds to drift during prayer, it's hypocrisy. If we listen to the Word of God and choose not to apply it, it's hypocrisy. It's not about the elements. Paul is, in, again, he's just using the Lord's table to illustrate the hypocrisy in their worship service. But all of this could be manifested, not just on the days we celebrate the Lord's table, but every day. So how does Paul bring it to conclusion? He says, so then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So this tells us that a big part of their problem, again, was that they were consuming food before other people had a chance to eat it. And again, this seems to indicate that at least some part of the meal was shared. And so some were probably taking more than their fair share, and some were going without. The other piece of advice he gives besides wait for one another is eat at home. He tells those who are hungry, eat at home first when you come. Therefore, you will not be tempted to sin against your brothers and sisters because of your lack of self-control. It also would suggest that the meal was a common meal. And he says, do this so it will not be for judgment. Do this so that when you show up, you're not setting yourself up. The self-centeredness that was demonstrated in their lack of self-control was resulting in the judgment of God. So that some were being disciplined with weakness, sickness, even death. And so this individualism and this selfishness was really a big deal. And so when we come together as a body, we need to come together likewise prepared to worship Christ and prepared to love one another, to die to ourselves and to care for one another more than ourselves. That's what we need to come to. If we're Christians, that's what we are. That's what we do. That's what church is about. 
Being that tomorrow is Memorial Day, it seemed fitting to conclude with a story from our nation's military history and conclude with a story that, that illustrates what it means to lay down our life for another. The training center I went to when I was training to be a chaplain a couple years ago was called Four Chaplains Memorial Chapel. And this is the story about those four chaplains. On, the February, on February 3rd, 1943, the Dorchester, a converted luxury cruise ship, was transporting 900 army troops to Greenland in the dead of a freezing night. It was hit by a torpedo fired by a German U-boat. The torpedo exploded in the broiler room, destroying the electric supply and releasing suffocating clouds of steam and ammonia gas. The tremendous explosion threw soldiers from bunks and the lights went out as the stricken ship listed to starboard, sinking fast. Those not trapped below rushed topside, Amid the shriek of escaping steam and frantic blasts of the ship's whistle, dazed men stumbled about in the dark, crowded decks. Some gripped the rails, too struck with horror to head toward the lifeboats. The four chaplains on board, a Methodist, a rabbi, a Catholic, and a Dutch Reformed pastor, quickly moved among the bewildered men, calming them, directing them to the life rafts, urging them to escape the doomed ship. Many had forgotten their life jackets. The chaplains located a supply deck in a locker and passed them out. When the bin was empty, they pulled off their own and made others put them on. Only two of the 14 lifeboats were successfully used in abandoning the ship. Soldiers leaped into the icy sea. They clutched the gunwales of the two overloaded lifeboats, clung, like, clung to the donut-like rafts or floated alone. Some men were insulated by the thick fuel that coated them and floated in life jackets for eight hours. The four chaplains remained on the ship's slanted aft deck, standing together, heads bowed in prayer, as the ship slipped beneath the waves. Let us be a dying church. The more we die, to ourselves, the more beautiful a bride we will be. And everything in this world encourages superficial beauty, prettiness. But let us be those who not only let go of superficial beauty, but those who go as far as death. There's no greater beauty than when people lay down their lives for one another. Falling on a hand grenade to, to, to save your fellow soldier is a beautiful act. But it's not pretty. And likewise, let us be a church of such death-embracing beauty. Because we know what Christ has done for us. Let us likewise do for one another. Jesus as you died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. And let us die to make men free, figuratively or literally, if you so choose. But grant us such an understanding of what you have done for us.
that death would be a very light decision. We ask these things in your name. Amen.